Let us pray. Lord God of the overworked and the oppressed, the burnouts and the broken, the busy and the distracted, we thank you for the gift of your words. May our eyes be opened and our hearts burn in our chests as we meet, as, we, as you meet each and every one of us in this place today. Amen. So this is the third sermon for me this weekend, and I have only heard one complaint. I'm sure there's plenty more, but only one has been spoken to me, and it is that I have been way too fast. So I've had weeks to mull over these texts, and I had 13 pages of handwritten notes for this sermon that yesterday, about an hour before service, I finally distilled down into 2,334 words which seems like a lot, and it seems like I have a lot of ground to cover. And I'm, I'm, I'm from a church tradition where sermons are 30 minutes at minimum. You know, you might, you might hear three sermons in one Sunday, and they might have all been an hour long, so y'all could have came at 8 o'clock, and if I was staying true to where I'm from, you might have just been here through noon. Um, but in an effort to not do that, uh, I've, I guess I sped up a whole lot. And so I'm going to ask you a favor if I'm getting too fast, just look at me, glare at me, glare at me, you do, a, you know, do, do a motion of some kind, because uh, I want you to stay with me, and I talk at about, yeah, perfect, Dave, perfect. I talk at about 500 words a second, so I want this to be more than a two-minute sermon, but I don't want to keep you here all day. So I won't lie, when I first read the text designated for this weekend in the lectionary, I was not thrilled. I mean, they're good texts, especially the Amos text and the Psalm text, you know, standing up to tyrants. Um, and the, you know, the Amos passage is really right up my alley. I love the whole prophet motif and their boldness. These wild, typically wilderness, weird anarchists who uh, have this major resistance to the status quo. So I'm with that. Uh, and despite the gospel text being one that I enjoy, it's just not one that I would have actually chosen to preach on. It's really short. It's kind of a strange placement within the whole Luke and Gospel narrative. This is right after Jesus tells, sends out the 72, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and right before he teaches the disciples how to, how to pray, we have this weird uh, four-verse text of Jesus, Martha, and Mary at Bethany. And so it's not one that I would have chosen to preach on. But when we come to Scripture, we know that it's like a diamond. Every way you turn it, every way you rotate it, it reflects and refracts light differently. And this is one of the most amazing aspects of Scripture, but also one of the most frustrating if you're trying to write a sermon on four, only four verses. There are little readings, ethical readings, allegorical readings, and a dozen more hermeneutical approaches that you can take when it comes to reading Scripture and interpreting it and crafting a sermon. Upon my initial engagement of the text, it seemed like the people who have structured our lectionary reading were either just being lazy, were being lazy or just didn't really care to find a better Old Testament text to pair with the gospel reading for today. Maybe I was just missing the connection, but it, it's taken weeks. But after wrestling with this for the past several weeks, and, though it wasn't, and it wasn't until this week that some form of semblance of a connection between the gospel narrative and the words of the prophet Amos that we heard spoken today began to take shape. I'm going to do my best to present this gospel story in light of the words spoken to us by the prophet Amos. They're harsh words, they're difficult words, but I think they're more than relevant. 
In the Pentecostal expressions of the faith, which is where I cut my Christian teeth, we would have called what I'm attempting to do today the, an act of using our sanctified imagination. As an act of, it's an act of seeing the text with timelessness, reading them and understanding them if they were just as for us today as they were for those who they were written for in their times and places. To use your sanctified imagination is to see between the lines of Scripture, to draw connections, connections between seemingly unrelated portions of the text, is an attempt to paint a picture that spans time, space, and even context. So I invite you not only to check me if I'm going too fast, but to imagine with me today. Because I'm going to take some things and we're going to stretch them a bit. Our reading from Amos is one of my favorite. Amos is definitely one of my favorite prophets in general, but this chapter especially. Amos is a post-exilic prophet. A shepherd turned the voice of God. In the brief words that we have of Amos, we can see clearly in this chapter that God is calling Israel to repentance. See, in this chapter, what's even more interesting is that we get the oldest and arguably first historical mention of the concept of Sabbath. So even before Genesis and Deuteronomy and the Exodus, historically speaking, Amos is the first mention we get of Sabbath. Here, Amos paints a picture of the people who long for Sabbath to be over so that they can go back to their work of exploitation and predatory economics. Which is all very interesting in light of the fact that the Sabbath was originally an act of resistance that God called, at least in the narrative of Scripture that we have, that God called the Israelites to in the face of the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, where production was God. Actually, almost all of the most important events in the Scriptures themselves arise in the wake of oppressive structures, Tyrant kings, like the one mentioned in the psalm today, unjust labor and predatory economics. So here we have the prophet Amos calling Israel, calling Israel out for becoming the very thing that God had redeemed them from in the Exodus. Sabbath was meant to be a refusal to live depleted, distracted, and fragmented lives. The Sabbath command was given to the Israelites as a way to prevent them from being identified by what they consumed and what they can produce. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains the Sabbath this way. In our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is visible insistence that our lives and the lives of our neighbors are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. So what does this have to do with Mary and Martha? I asked that question a lot over the last several weeks. And more importantly, what does this have to do with us? So in our gospel reading, we have Martha who's very distracted. And Jesus tells her, you're very distracted. And that Mary has chosen the better part. This text has been interpreted so many ways over the course of the last 2,000 years of Christian history. And most of those interpretations, hell Mary, no pun intended, she's not the right Mary, as the epitome of the life dedicated to God. Martha nearly always gets a bad rap. Almost all the conclusions boil this story down to Mary versus Martha, contemplation versus action, interior life versus exterior life, and faith versus works. Unless you're a master Eckhart, who's one of my favorite Christian heretics, who praises Martha over Mary, but that's a whole other sermon for a different day, 
Modern interpretations like modern interpreters like Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau seem to do well to avoid this false dichotomy. And they're not alone, but they, they themselves um, avoid the false dichotomy of pitting these two sisters against each other. We are both, in their thought, Mary and Martha. We must learn to be both contemplative and active, to know when to sit at the feet of Jesus and when to get things done, when to pray and when to work. The contemplative and the active lives are not in opposition, they say, but must be brought into harmony for neither can fully exist without the other. I'm a fan of those readings. The best sermons I have heard on this text, on this gospel text, have been ones that show how like Martha we all really are. I know I tend to identify more with her. We, of course, live in a world where busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a protection against emptiness. I mean, obviously, our lives must have meaning if our schedules are cram-packed and we are always busy. I drank six shots of espresso this morning because I didn't go to bed <laughs> until 1 a.m., um, which isn't good, but that is ingrained in me. Well, you don't need to sleep. You'll just drink coffee in the morning and get things done. These sermons use this narrative to call the listeners into the evaluation of their lives, call us to the evaluation of our lives. They challenge us to be aware of how we spend our time and calls us to repentance. These sermons tend to also do the very good work of showing us how important and holy the everyday monotony of life can be. That in fact, God is just available to us in the washing of dishes, in the busyness of our lives, as he is in 20 minutes of silent prayer on a mat every morning. Most importantly, these sermons call us to the practice of sitting at the feet of Jesus, or as I like to think of it, in my sanctified imagination, the practice of Sabbath. I think these sermons are good, but that at the end of the day, they miss the point, or at least the greater point, in my opinion. Do not get me wrong, we could all probably use a reminder to slow down, to take a break, and be better stewards of what little time we have on this earth. We could all benefit from realizing that there is divine in the dirt and miracle in the mess of everyday life, that God is with us in all of it. But these sermons tend to miss the forest for the trees, because today we live in a world of predatory economics, government systems of exploitation, and a capitalist system where consumption and production are the gods of the age. A world very similar in so many ways to the world of Amos and Martha and the Israelites in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh. Like Martha, so many in our world are concerned with getting food on the table, changing dirty diapers, and making rent. They do not even have the option to choose the better part, like Mary. Maybe the Martha in the text could have chosen the better part and she chose wrong. That does not mean that the Marta, mother of three children, whose husband was deported back to Guatemala and has to work three jobs to make sure her children have enough food, can choose the better part. Or that Dan, who goes to school full-time and works at a coffee shop in town but has to sleep in his car at night because he can't afford rent in Flagstaff, can choose the better part. Or Derek, who has to work six days a week at a job that will likely send him to an early grave for barely more than minimum wage, can choose the better part, like Mary. To choose the better part and sit at the feet of Jesus is to practice Sabbath. And Sabbath is an act of resistance. Its purpose is to differentiate us from the demands of, a, of the world, 
a formative purpose that has always been geared towards the making of whole humans. When Jesus tells Martha that she is distracted, the literal Greek rending of the word distracted means to be pulled in many directions, to be fragmented, to be frayed. There's an anxiety that comes with busyness. Martha is the victim of fragmentation in a system that seeks to form her under conditions that demand productivity and place busyness at the summit of all virtue. Like Martha, many of the most vulnerable in our world exist in a system that's chief goal is that fragmentation of the individual. Whole humans are harder to control and sway. Unfortunately, unlike in Amos' day, there's no longer a designated Sabbath day that can even momentarily hold back the principalities and powers of empire that wield those exploitative economics and government policies in ways that continue the grand project of dehumanization of the individual Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the act of gathering oneself. It is essential to becoming whole humans. But in our day and age, it remains nearly unattainable for the least of these in our society. My generation seems to be especially critiqued for our busyness, always being on our phones, always being somewhere else, never being able to sit and have a conversation with people. There's a nugget of truth in those critiques. We have no idea how to be still to Sabbath, to sit at the feet of Jesus. But this has little to do with personal choice because we live in a world that does not permit us the opportunity for a different reality than the one of burnout, busyness, and the endless cycle of exhaustion that comes with a culture that values the bottom line over human flourishing. We live in a world that glorifies this system of gross abuse. Capitalism is predicated on the exploitation and domination of people. Episcopal scholar Catherine Tanner in her book, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, says this, The capitalistic economy of the present day is an immense cosmos into which the individual is born, and which presents itself to him at least as an individual, as an unalterable order of things in which he must live. It forces the individual, insofar as he is involved in the system of market relationships, to conform to capitalistic rules of action. The manufacturer who, who in the long run acts counter to these norms will just as inevitably be eliminated from the economic scene as the worker who cannot or will not adapt himself to them and will be thrown into the streets without a job. Catherine Tanner goes to great lengths to explain that the Christian commitment is one of continual reorientation towards God and how our commitment to Christ not only runs counterintuitive, but completely subverts capitalism's demands of absolute obedience and adherence to its systems of production and consumption. A website called Fiverr.com kind of really just sums up the state of our world. Fiverr is a place where you can sign up to do jobs for as little as $5 in Fiverr. You can get someone to do a graphic for you, or a recording, a looking, I mean, just anything you can think of. People are doing it for $5 and some more, but they, they were running an ad recently that reads, if you eat coffee for lunch, you follow through with your follow through, and sleep deprivation is your drug of choice, then you might be a doer. The predatory economics of Pharaoh and Caesar are alive and well, and they are going to great lengths to shape each and every one of us. Honestly, they are doing a much better job at spiritual deformation than the church has been doing at spiritual formation for nearly a century. 
So I hope you see, or can at least imagine with me, why I think those sermons I mentioned earlier are good, but are simply not enough. It is not enough to tell individuals to be better stewards of their time, or that they can find God in the work they are doing when the work they are doing is actively dehumanizing them, and what little time they have has been spent laboring in such a way that leaves them fragmented and exhausted. We as the church must do the difficult work of resisting the established rhythms given to us in a land where production and consumption are the chief of God's. The challenge is not to the individual who fight tooth and nail just to survive day to day. The challenge is rather on us, on the church. Those of us who are privileged enough to be able to choose the better part already, the challenge falls in our lap to work on behalf of our neighbors, on behalf of our Marthas and Martas and Dans and Derricks of the community in in our midst and outside of our church and in our world so that they can too even have the opportunity to choose the better part. I am the youth and young adult director here at Epiphany, and so you might have noticed there's not a lot of us. There's not a lot of youth, and there's not a lot of young adults. So this this conversation is not something I hope that you think I'm just projecting out to you, because this is something that I wrestle with in my own ministry. How do I, as a director of young adults and youth, create a space that runs counterintuitive to the rhythms that plague the families in our church, the teens in our church, who have their test scores right in their pocket as soon as they're done, who are bussed around to activity activity because they got to get into college, that are super busy, to to the college kids and young adults with families? How... Am I taking this seriously? How am I trying to create a space with the Holy Spirit that runs counter to the rhythms that they have been forced into, a space that is Sabbath for them when they come? I'm not sure I've gotten it yet, but I think it's essential for the future of the church, not just what I'm doing, not just for Epiphany, but the church as a whole. We have to figure out ways to provide Sabbath for the people that have not been given that opportunity. So the question is, for those of us who can choose the better part, what are we doing to make sure our neighbors have the chance to do the same? What are we as Christians going to do to resist this grand project of spiritual deformation that is being waged against us and our neighbors in the name of productivity and a facade of a healthy work ethic? How are we as a church going to help Martha have the chance to become whole? What rhythms Models and narratives are we going to offer as alternatives to a world that wants to commodify everyone? What alternatives to the politics and the policies of Pharaoh and predatory economics of a system hellbent on the dehumanization of our neighbors will we offer? I think if we don't, we're in trouble. There's a reason church attendance across the board is the way that it is. There's a reason those things is we, we try to meet people where they're at the best we can, but most often the Christian tradition has still operated under those same guidelines established by the world. I, even back home in Alabama, which is like the, the Bible belt, you know, like there were certain things that were just closed on Sunday, but we don't live in that world anymore. 
We don't live in a world that stops at dark. We don't live in a world that has Sabbath. And so what are we as a church and as people who can choose the better part going to do to change that? Let us pray. Father God, creator, sustainer, the God of our salvation and liberation, the God who heals, the God who transforms, the God who calls us to realize our salvation is not some transcendent reality, but a beckoning to be a part of an imminent rule and reign, to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God come in flagstaff as it is in heaven, to create shalom and Sabbath for our neighbors, to be a refuge for the weary and the broken, the burnouts and the done. We ask, Lord, that you would challenge us, you would stir in us, that by your Holy Spirit, that we would put our hands to the plow and offering a counter narrative and a counter rhythm for those that can't break away, for those that are stuck in a system that currently <laughs> and has no other no other motive than dehumanization. In your precious name, we pray. Amen.